everyone! Welcome back to Pretty Making, a podcast about Scott Westerfeld's Ugly series. I'm so excited to start digging into the books again and going through them with you all, but I have a bit of a confession to make. I'm not actually starting the first book yet. I know, I know, what else could I possibly have to talk about after the podcast introduction that I already did? But bear with me here. Before we start Uglies, I want to talk about something I actually didn't know about when I first read them in high school and which I only found out about when I got the physical copies of the books recently. Upon flipping through the pages after receiving my secondhand box set in the mail, I noticed something on the page just before part one. It reads, This novel was shaped by a series of email exchanges between myself and Ted Chiang about his story, Liking What You See, a documentary. His input on the manuscript was also invaluable. I know that writers are often influenced by one another, but I've rarely seen an author give a written nod to a specific author and a specific work. Naturally, I had to find out more. What was this story, and how had it influenced Uglies? When I first looked it up, it wasn't obvious where it had been published or where to read it. It wasn't until searching just the author's name that I found out that it's part of Stories of Your Life and Others, a collection of short stories by Chiang. It's actually been republished a few times due to another one of the stories being the inspiration for the 2016 film Arrival, so you know it's gotta be good. I'd highly recommend checking out the whole book, but I will mention that Liking What You See is available a few places online if you're just curious about this particular story. Either way, it's well worth the read. Seriously, this short story is masterful in its execution. It didn't take long to see how it had influenced Westerfeld. Before I get into some finer details, let me just say, in case it wasn't clear, big spoilers for the story ahead. Liking What You See, a documentary, is written in the style of, you guessed it, a documentary. It starts with the following quote, Beauty is the promise of happiness which comes from the 19th century French writer Stendhal. Now, I haven't read all of Stendhal's On Love, where this quote comes from, but the context is confusing at best. From what I understand, though, the entirety of On Love is a bit hard to follow. At first glance, the quote seems to imply that we desire beauty as a promise of happiness. Considering the very real issues of lookism in its many forms, which this short story touches on, the interpretation would make sense. Many people today seek to make themselves more beautiful, according to societal standards, to avoid being overlooked for jobs, ignored romantically, even publicly ridiculed. But when you put the quote in context, it paints a different picture. This quote is actually a footnote that comes after the beginning of chapter 17, Beauty Usurped by Love. And it comes from a bit about how when we love someone, even their so-called flaws or ugliness becomes preferred and, quote, become beauty. It's very much a strange beauty is in the eye of the beholder type chapter that would imply that beauty, no matter who or what we are individually seeing it in, is built on the promise of happiness from the person. Thus, it's not about beauty leading to happiness, but the promise of happiness leading to our perception of beauty. Granted, this is purely my interpretation, but I thought the quote was worth mentioning as it has a lot of possible application to this story and to the Ugly series. Getting into the story itself, we're introduced to Tamara Lyons, a first-year student at Pembleton. 
We read her opening complaints, followed by comments from a third-year student and president of the Students for Equality Everywhere named Maria D'Souza, and a neurologist. Through these three perspectives, we're introduced to the concept of caliagnosia, or CALI. CALI is essentially a way to stop the brain from processing information about how good a person looks. As the neurologist explains, a caliagnostic perceives faces perfectly well. He or she can tell the difference between a pointed chin and a receding one, a straight nose and a crooked one, clear skin and blemished skin. He or she simply doesn't experience any aesthetic reaction to those differences. This is achieved by, quote, simulating a specific brain lesion. This is accomplished with a programmable pharmaceutical called Neurostat, which can be controlled via signals sent into the brain with a helmet. That's somewhat oversimplifying it, but considering this isn't a real technology, I think that's enough to get the gist of it. The story centers on Pembleton and an upcoming vote for the university to require all students to have Cali activated while they're at school. They believe that this will help level the playing field of lookism and create a better environment for students without the pressures of looking a specific way to be treated well. Students for Equality Everywhere, the organization I mentioned before, is responsible for putting forth this idea after there was backlash to another new technology, which allows people with these special augmented reality glasses to see what people would look like with plastic surgery. You know, basically applying filters to people, but in real time, not just in phone apps, without their consent. Yikes. Tamara, however, is a student that grew up with Callie since her parents enrolled her at a school that required it as well. Now that she's almost 18 and is enrolling at Pembleton, she's angry that her choice to turn it off is being threatened. She ends up turning it off to test out what it's like, and her personal experience is contextualized with the back-and-forth battle on campus for people's votes on either side. To quickly summarize Tamara's experiences, she initially is worried about how she'll look to herself, but once her brain adjusts, she realizes that she's really pretty. And she's super happy about that. She also finds out from talking to someone else that her ex-boyfriend, who broke up with her just before college, would be considered unattractive. To her, of course, he isn't, but that's because she knew and loved him. Hmm, that sounds familiar. She ends up reaching out to him and trying to convince him to turn his Callie off as well, hoping he'll see how stunningly beautiful she is and want to get back together. He does end up trying it, but he eventually turns it back on, in part because he realizes he's not attractive. At first, Tamara is hurt by this. But in the end, she ends up getting her own Callie turned back on and realizes she was trying to manipulate her ex, which wasn't fair. She ends up with a somewhat nuanced look at Callie, noting that this is a new issue that her parents didn't have to deal with, highlighting how rapidly changing technology is never easy to navigate and creates new moral issues to grapple with. Meanwhile, the debate happens all around Tamara, and neither side is particularly keen on playing fair. Throughout the story, we learn that some students, specifically very good-looking ones, have been paid by a PR firm, Wyatt Hayes, to dissuade other students from voting for the measure to require Cali. Later, a coordinated campaign takes down a dozen Caliagnosia student organization websites, probably linked to the same firm, although that isn't confirmed. There are also commercials aired from the People for Ethical Nanomedicine, showing examples of people who supposedly grew up with Cali and now have issues because they can't perceive beauty. 
It's somewhat debunked in part because this organization turns out to be another PR front for a group of cosmetic companies, but it still has an impact on the conversation. On the other side of this, we learn of Semiotech Warriors, a quote, culture jamming group that's basically a pro-Cali hacker network. They released the information about the PR firm secretly paying students to advocate against Cali, and they also end up creating a dermatology computer virus that alters video broadcasts to make people look like they have acne and varicose veins. Meanwhile, Students for Equality Everywhere invite Walter Lambert, president of the National Caliagnosia Association, to speak on campus, hoping to use the NCA's work around beauty in the media as a counterpoint to the Wyatt Hayes scandal. Lambert compares the way that peak beauty is used in the media to overstimulate us to cocaine, which is obviously an extreme comparison, but it still creates a powerful message. Both sides of this debate bring a mix of good arguments and totally overblown or fabricated ones. There are also a lot of one-off interviews that cover a lot of ground one would expect in this sort of debate. One person thinks the pro-Cali side is just ugly people who are jealous. Another talks about feeling guilty when they get positive attention for being beautiful because they haven't earned that treatment, and they know that others aren't treated the same if they're considered ugly. One guy tries it and ends up really liking it because it makes him less self-conscious and better able to talk to people. Yet another complains that Callie is clearly bad because it's like nonstop beer goggles and he only wants the hottest of hot women. Ugh. One of my favorite interviews, though, is with Lori Harbour, a third-year student at Maxwell College who gets radically ugly by surgically removing her nose. Yeah. She says that, quote, it's about how ugly can beat beautiful at its own game. I get more looks walking down the street than a beautiful woman. You see me standing next to a video model. Who are you going to notice more? Me. That's who. You won't want to, but you will. There's also a really interesting religious look at the debate in which a professor of religious studies points out that while the pro-Cali side seems really progressive and secular, pushing Cali can also be seen as an expression of the usually conservative, monotheistically tied beliefs about the soul being more important than the body and thus the body being something we should deny. I can't explain it super well myself, so definitely read the story to better understand this point. But there is a really great quote from this that I want to share as I think it helps show how complex this debate really is. He says, This debate isn't just about commercials and cosmetics. It's about determining what's the appropriate relationship between the mind and the body. Are we more fully realized when we minimize the physical parts of our nature? And that, you have to agree, is a profound question. There are a lot of layers to this short story, and you really just need to read it to get the full experience. But I think the biggest takeaway is that throughout the story, you'll probably find yourself persuaded one way or the other, then to the other side, then back again, over and over. Because the debate isn't simple. It's easy to take a position on Callie either way, but while both sides have some really extreme or just plain weak arguments, they also both have strong ones. And even some of the ones coming from the side you really don't want to support, the PR firms for big corporations that obviously don't want Cali widely used since it would hurt their bottom line, actually do make some sense. For such a quick read, it really makes your head spin. And of course, there's the ending. 
we think we're hitting the final note when the vote fails after a moving speech by Rebecca Boyer, a spokesperson for People for Ethical Nanomedicine. And it actually is a really powerful speech, which basically highlights how, since we can't force everyone to have Cali, we could lose our ability to spot discrimination if we can't see beauty, but others can. If someone were being treated unfairly based on looks, how would those with Cali even know? As a reader, we of course are just reading the speech and may find ourselves agreeing. It is, after all, a fair point. But the story takes another turn when we find out that Wyatt Hayes digitally altered the footage of the speech to make it more persuasive. Another layer of manipulation that Semiotech uncovers. The new technology they used enhanced Boyer's voice intonation, facial expressions, and body language to mimic some of the greatest speakers of all time. While the unenhanced version had viewers saying her performance was good, the enhanced version was said to be excellent and extraordinarily dynamic and persuasive. We're left with an uneasy feeling about just how easy people are to manipulate if you have the right technology. But to get the full effect of this story, you really just need to read it in its entirety. With all of that being said, how does this tie into the Ugly series? For those that haven't read it before, there's a lot more I could say, but I'll save it for later to prevent unnecessary spoilers. Looking just at the core plots, though, Ugliness takes this idea of trying to find social equality through altering people to an extreme. While Callie is a reversible, somewhat unobtrusive way to block our brains from processing people's beauty, Uglies takes the opposite approach by segregating ugly people before they're 16, at which point they undergo full body surgery to become pretty. It leans into the idea that prettiness is an ideal, so instead of taking beauty away from everyone, it'll more or less force everyone to have it. But while it's less of a point in liking what you see, both stories have this dark underlying idea of what is pretty. Liking what you see puts forth the idea that beauty is universal in specific things like facial symmetry and lack of acne. What it and the Ugly series don't address, at least via the characters, is how there are a lot of aspects of beauty that are influenced by the cultures that we live in. We know that people make value judgments based on a variety of physical features, even if we're looking just at attractiveness and leaving out the many other layers of lookism. We can even see how those supposedly innate preferences change over time, especially when looking at things like body size and tanning. Callie seems like it would account for these things since it works based on your brain's processing of aesthetic value, but there are still questions around how exactly it could change in the future. In part of the story, an anti-Cali person is questioning who is deciding what we see. The argument goes like this. Cali takes away the good as well as the bad. It doesn't just work when there's a possibility of discrimination. It keeps you from recognizing beauty altogether. There are plenty of times when looking at an attractive face doesn't hurt anyone. Cali won't let you make those distinctions, but education will. And I know someone will say, what about when the technology gets better? Maybe one day they'll be able to insert an expert system into your brain, one that goes, is this an appropriate situation to appreciate beauty? If so, enjoy it. Else, ignore it. Would that be okay? Would that be the assisted maturity you hear people talking about? No, it wouldn't. 
That wouldn't be maturity. It'd be letting an expert system make your decisions for you. Maturity means seeing the differences but realizing they don't matter. There's no technological shortcut. Another student responds, no one's talking about letting an expert system make your decisions. What makes Cali ideal is precisely that it's such a minimal change. Cali doesn't decide for you. It doesn't prevent you from doing anything. And as for maturity, you demonstrate maturity by choosing Cali in the first place. Everyone knows physical beauty has nothing to do with merit. That's what education has accomplished. But even with the best intentions in the world, people haven't stopped practicing lookism. We try to be impartial. We try not to let a person's appearance affect us, but we can't suppress our autonomic responses. And anyone who claims that they can is engaged in wishful thinking. Ask yourself, don't you react differently when you meet an attractive person and when you meet an unattractive one? Every study on this issue turns up the same results. Looks help people get ahead. We can't help but think of good-looking people as more competent, more honest, more deserving than others. None of it's true, but their looks still give us that impression. Callie doesn't blind you to anything. Beauty is what blinds you. Callie lets you see. Now, whether or not you agree with that response, people in this story are at least considering this issue and what you could say boils down to free will. In Uglies, we see a radically different approach, one that feels like it came after all these conversations were already had. Instead of taking away someone's ability to perceive beauty, why not just make everyone beautiful? It's a total win-win, right? But of course, there's the question again, who is deciding what is beautiful? At least with Callie, we're trading the ability to see any beauty in people, no matter what beauty means for us personally. The very concept of beauty in faces would be gone, at the expense of being able to see it. It's a pretty one-to-one -one type of trade-off. The gift is the curse. The curse is the gift. But in Uglies, Westerfeld pulled this how-do-we-handle-lookism question into a future where the question has already been answered. The debate appears to be over, and the solution is to change how everyone looks, rather than how they see. And thus... Beauty is the promise of happiness. Perhaps not in the way that phrase was intended, but this is what the Uglies verse has people believing. That much like pro-Cali folks have said, we simply cannot educate ourselves out of lookism, and therefore we have to take a more radical approach. As a reader, we can see the overlapping threads of this debate between these two stories where liking what you see a documentary thrusts us in the middle of the debate, Uglies confronts us with how hard it is to come back from a decision of that scale once it's made, and how hard it can be to realize that it may not be the perfect solution that we thought it was in the first place. I'm really glad I took the time to look into this story more, not just because the inspiration is clear upon reading it, but it also shows how two people can approach a similar topic and come out with two totally different stories. Which is great for getting two totally unique stories to enjoy, but it also helps broaden our understanding of the larger topic. It gives us different perspectives so that we can better interpret what the stories are trying to tell us. In fact, one thing that I think both stories do really well is not pushing the reader to come away with one particular message. Because there isn't just one. 
you don't leave either story going, wow, clearly this is what was right and this is what was wrong. And that's the end of it. You get nuance. You get frustrating imperfection. You have questions. And that's what makes both stories so good. Well, I think that about wraps up my thoughts on this story. I think it really sets the stage for Uglies, and I hope it gave you something to chew on as well, whether or not you've read Uglies before. In the next episode, I promise I'll start on the actual Ugly series, although I'm still figuring out how much I want to read at a time. The chapters are pretty short, and they also aren't numbered, so I'll just be sure to list their titles so you can read along if you want to. I'd give page numbers, but I'm honestly not sure if they changed at all between the multiple printings, so I think this will be easiest. And that's it. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts. If you have something to add, comment on, or share, you can email me at prettymaking at outlook.com. That's prettymaking, no dash, no space, no nothing, at outlook.com. Thank you so much for listening. Your support means a lot. It's like so pretty making of you.